Good morning. So we have a new anti-bullying campaign <laughs> this week. All jokes aside, what do we do when we find ourselves encountering passages in Scripture like this one that leave us scratching our head? that we can't find a way to rationalize or to make sense of. To me, the passage we find today sounds far more like a rated R version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears than it does something you'd expect to find in the God-breathed scriptures that we've been given. You know, our tendency when we run into passages like this that make us uncomfortable and a prophet calling for two bears to maul 42 kids makes most of us kind of uncomfortable, is to avoid it. We want to cut it out and we don't want to deal with it, but when we do that with scripture, what we end up getting is an incomplete puzzle. Because reading the Bible was never meant to make us comfortable. It might be comforting, but when we encounter the living word of God, it is bound to cause us moments of discomfort. And this is why we're encouraged to read our Bible all the way through, over and over and over again. Because if we start deciding to just cherry pick our own verses or our favorite stories, it is far too easy to end up making God in our image rather than allowing ourselves to be shaped by God. In our scripture today, we find ourselves meeting up with a great prophet, a man both Jews and Christians have come to revere over the centuries, Elisha, the apprentice of Elijah, the great prophet, and he's just seen his mentor taken spectacularly and mysteriously up into the heavens by chariots of fire by God. And there have been some big shoes left for him to fill. And it is right in this moment of his transition, his moment of ascension, he's approached by some men from Jericho. You see, they have a problem. Their water is bad. Now, for those of us who can just turn on a tap and have clean water whenever we feel like it, we might not understand the severity of this situation. But when you live in a desert city, if your water supply has gone bad, you are in big trouble. The water is causing people to die. It's causing women to lose their pregnancies. They don't know what to do. And so hearing of their plight, Elijah decides to help them. He asks for some salt, and he goes forward, and he sprinkles it in the water. But more than that, he pronounces a blessing from God over that water. And he declares that the water is healed, that it no longer will bring death to those who seek and follow God. And as soon as he's finished with this miracle, he begins on a journey. He sets out towards the city of Bethel. And when he's almost there, he runs into a large crowd. A large crowd of what seems to be children telling him to go away. Get out of here. We don't want you. And in response to this, he claims not a blessing, but a curse. And he sends two bears to come and kill 42 children. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems to me like a little bit of an overreaction that escalated very quickly. 
And I'm not the only one. You see, for centuries, scholar after scholar has tried to come up with reasons as to why Elisha's response was appropriate in its context. They will point out that it most likely wasn't little children, that the word in Hebrew could be used for anyone maybe even up to the age of 30. So it could have been 30, 42 adults that were mauled, and that's fine. <laughs> they, they will tell you that it was a dangerous mob because when bears come to attack, most people run. And so if 42 people were caught, then there must have been hundreds that were gathered. It was a dangerous mob. This was his only course of action, they'll say. They'll point out that the insult baldy or bald head was probably not really an insult about his hair, but was more lack thereof, but was more an insult about him being a prophet of God. That maybe his baldness was a symbol like a tonsure that monks currently have where they shave their head. And so these kids weren't actually mocking Elisha, they were mocking God himself. And therefore, an appropriate response must have been exhibited. They'll point out that Bethel was a city of idol and pagan worship. And so, of course, something had to happen to it. On and on they will go trying to find an acceptable reason that a prophet of God sent bears to maul people who were calling him bald. The only answer that seems unacceptable for most of our scholars is that there was no acceptable reason for the level of response that Elisha chose. Now, a few years ago, I was in the city of Rome, and I had the privilege to tour the Vatican. From the basilica to the ancient paintings that you find in the museum, it is a feast for the senses and the eyes. But my favorite part of the entire tour was the time when I got to go into the Sistine Chapel. If you haven't had the privilege, you'll find yourself shoved down a dark staircase with a lot of other people, and you come out into a room that's not quite as big as maybe you would expect, and it is packed shoulder to shoulder. But you look up, and all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. Because the incredible artistic majesty that Michelangelo has created is awe-inspiring. And as I stood there staring up at the ceiling, at those frescoes he's painted from Genesis, I began to think of something I had never really considered much before. You see, when Michelangelo decided to paint the creation of Adam and Eve, he decided to paint them with the same proportions, the same everything as he chose to paint God. He wanted to communicate through his imagery that Adam and Eve, that humanity really was created in the image of God. In the very next scene he paints, though, we see the fall and we see their expulsion from Eden. That even in their failing and their sin and their brokenness, Michelangelo continues to paint and maintain humanity in the image of God. And it got me thinking about the nature of humanity, about the complexity of humans who can be both the image of God and yet still so very broken at the same time. And it brings me back to our reading today, that there, it's possible 
that perhaps we could consider the idea that there really was no good excuse for Elisha's actions. That rather than trying to do linguistic or mental gymnastics to try to find a way for it to be okay for the prophet of God to call two bears to maul 42 kids, we accept it's maybe a little out of line. Most of us have probably seen Spider-Man or read the comics at some point in our life, and we probably remember that famous line from Uncle Ben. Those with great power have great responsibility. It's a thought that is not unique to the movie. It is from thousands of years of history, but it asks us to recognize that those entrusted with power should be very careful about how they use it. And honestly, most of us seem to forget that we, you and I, each and every one of us, has also been entrusted with a great deal of power. Because you and I, we are created in the very image of God, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The inherent power in those statements, that of all creation, we were chosen to be made in the image of God, that the very power of God flows through us by the grace of Jesus is astounding if we stop and think about it. But if you're like me, you probably have to admit you don't think about it all too often. We don't think about our own power on a regular basis. In fact, we tend to underestimate our power that is inherent to who we are, and we overestimate the power of others. Maybe, just maybe, when Elisha calls down that curse and those bears come, he was forgetting the responsibility that comes with the great power that he had just been entrusted. And maybe, just maybe, in his anger, we find that he overreacted and caused far more damage than perhaps was intended. Because the prophet that just brought life and restoration to one town now brings death and devastation to another. And in some ways, for us in Scripture, this is a perfect delineation, a perfect place to look to recognize the war, the battle that goes on inside each and every one of us on a daily basis. George Bernard Shaw once wrote, a Native American elder once described his own inner struggles in this manner. Inside of me, there are two dogs. One of the dogs is mean and evil. The other dog is good. The mean dog fights the good dog all the time. When asked which dog wins, he reflected for a moment and replied, the one I feed the most. It is hard for us to admit that evil lies within us. Most of us fervently want to believe that we are good, that the people that we love are good. On the other hand, it is quite easy for us to believe that others are evil, especially when we don't like them or when they seem way too different. And when we hurt others, when we speak out of turn, when we cause harm, we have every excuse in the book for ourselves of why we didn't really mean it. And yet when others hurt us, 
There is no excuse to ever make it right. We have a tendency to do this with our favorite biblical characters as well. We want to reduce them to one-dimensional nature. We venerate our heroes like David and Peter and Solomon or Elisha. We want them to be perfect, to be all good, and so we try to excuse every action that they've ever taken, try to find a way to make it okay so that we can keep them up on the narrow pedestal of perfection that we've built. On the other hand, we look at people like Jezebel or Judas or Ananias and Sapphira and we assume the very worst about their intentions and their actions every time. But the truth about them and about us is that we are far more complicated than any one-dimensional characterization could ever explain. We do this every day in our lives with the people that we encounter. We create heroes and villains out of our coworkers, out of our politicians, out of our family members and friends and celebrities. And then we only look for the evidence that confirms what we already believe about people, rather than really looking at who they are. But as stories in scripture like the one of Elisha show us, every person possesses within them the ability to bring life or death, good and evil. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, this incredible power, this agency that we have been given that must be handled with the greatest of care and responsibility. Because the truth is that each one of us does have evil within us. We can and do hurt others all the time, both unintentionally and intentionally. But it's only when we can fully accept, when we can admit this duality of our nature, that like that Native American elder, we can be conscious and aware of the side that we are feeding within ourselves. Elijah made a choice with the power he was given to call for a curse upon those who insulted him. It's okay for us to think that maybe that was the wrong choice. That perhaps God wants it included in scripture and in our memories and our knowledge because it shows what happens when we let power go to our heads and we aren't careful with it. How many times throughout the course of human history have we seen devastation brought in the name of God? Whether it's the Crusades or the Inquisition or slavery or bombings in Ireland, each and every time the people who set about perpetrating those acts believed they were good, that they were serving God. And it is only through the eyes of history that we have been able to see that these are examples not of goodness, but of the misuse of God's power, no matter their intentions. You see, when we stopped thinking of people through the lens of good or bad, and instead see them as the fractured image of God, we find that things get both more complicated and quite simple. On the one hand, you can't put people into tiny, tidy little boxes any longer. It's a lot more work when you have to try to understand another human being, when you have to consider who they are and what 
has made them and the life they are living and have lived, the circumstances and the heartbreak and the pain. On the other hand, we become free. We are freed from the shackles of hate and from prejudice and from anger. It frees us from the devastation of realizing that our heroes are all too human all too often. And it frees us to allow ourselves to admit the truth of who we are and no longer hide it in the shadows. Like if there was anyone who ever knew the truth about the real nature of humanity, it was Jesus himself. When we read the Gospels, we see a Jesus who recognizes both the good and the bad in every person that he encounters and is not put off by it. He sees the brokenness in people like Peter and the Pharisees. And he sees the goodness in thieves and prostitutes and Roman soldiers and tax collectors. From the very cross itself, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They cannot see their own evilness even in the very face of the only good one. It is so easy for us to put people into a box to assume we know everything about who they are. Back in 2013, up in Washington State, my home state, there were a bunch of prisoners, about 10, who were out on work release. Their job that day was to help clean up a park, and when they were doing so, they began to hear screaming from the water. And at first, they just thought it was some kids playing around, but when they turned around to look, they realized a canoe had capsized in the frigid, fast-moving river. Now, three brothers, ages 8, 10, and 16, had gone out for the day, and when their canoe capsized, they found themselves in a very dangerous situation. With water at 45 degrees and moving that quickly, the likelihood of drowning or freezing to death is a high risk. Seeing the canoe capsize, two of these prisoners immediately tore off their jackets and ran and dove into the water. One swam downstream to where the 8 and the 10-year-old were and grabbed both of them and grabbed onto some debris, holding onto them, waiting to be rescued. The other went to the 16-year-old and helped pull him from the water and then immediately went back to help bring the other two to shore. All of the inmates, the three that were involved, took off their extra sweaters and gave them to the kids, and they waited for the rescue crews to get there. The children were taken to the hospital with mild hypothermia, but otherwise okay. When they were asked about it, the prisoners said this, we just did what any good person would do. Just because we're incarcerated doesn't mean we're bad people. We've made some bad choices in our lives. But we're still, we're just like everybody else. It's important for us to remember that there is only one person in all of Scripture that Jesus promised paradise to that day. And it was a thief hanging on a cross next to him as he was crucified. Through the eyes of Jesus, we are gifted a chance to see the brokenness and the beauty of humanity combined into one being. 
My prayer for us, my hope for us, is that we could all be a little bit more like Elisha in Jericho and a little less like Elisha in Bethel. That we could strive for more blessings in our life and less curses and that we could work to emulate the compassion and the vision of Jesus who recognized the very image of God in every person he encountered and brought life, not death, in his wake. Amen.